0: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come as your people to hear your word. But Lord, we ask that you hear our prayer. Father, we pray for the nations. Draw them by your word into your kingdom and to Christ. Father, we thank you for the missionaries who sacrificially give up so much for the spread of your gospel, drawing in your sheep. We thank you for Mark and Liz Scheibe. We thank you for the sacrifice they've made for the service of your church and for your glory. Bless their family. Bless their children. Bless the work of their hands. Father, we pray for peace among the nations. We pray for peace in Ukraine and Sudan and in Gaza and Israel. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. But Jesus, you have all authority in heaven and on earth. Rain down your peace like rain, that your land might flourish. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for President Biden and Vice President Harris. We pray for our senators, Blackburn and Haggerty. Lord, bless them and give them wisdom. Father, we pray for our denomination as it meets. In June, here in Memphis, bless your church. Father, we pray for our presbytery meeting that's this Tuesday in Oxford. Bless the elders as we actively take up the work of the church. Father, may we hold dearly to the purity and the peace of your church Give us wisdom and patience and love for one another. May you equip us with all that we need for the work of ministry so that your church might be built up and be presented mature in Christ. We pray for Austin Brash, the minister at RUF, Old Miss. Bless the work of his hands. Father, we ask that we might be like dew in our community nourishing all that we come in contact with for the benefit of your kingdom. May we be a blessing to this community. Father, we lift up a praise of thanksgiving for all of our teachers and administrators as they come to an end of the school year. We thank you for parents who homeschool their children. Lord, bless them in your work. Father, we thank you for Miss Pat. We thank you for her faith in Christ. Father, we pray for your healing upon many of our members. We pray for Cynthia Jaqua and for David. We pray for Karen Anderson and Mr. Ray. We pray for Bill Moore and for Miss Gale. We pray for John Michael Atkinson and for Mike and Becky. We pray for Dr. Lynch and Claire Reddit. Father, we ask for your healing to all who are suffering. We pray for our families. We pray for our marriages. Lord, protect us from the evil one. Father, we pray for our students who will be traveling to RYM this summer. We pray for the relationships that are formed and that the gospel might be understood, that you might plant your word deep within their hearts. We pray for our children who will come to VBS and for all the teachers. Bless Ms. Kimberly and her team. May much be made of Jesus that week. Will you bring children to faith that will change them forever? And Father, we pray also with thankfulness in our hearts and with abundant gratitude for all of our mothers who have sacrificed so much of their own lives for the sake of their children. They brought forth new life at a very high cost of themselves. We ask that you grant all of our mothers courage that they need to face through the pains of childbearing. For we all know that childbearing does not end when labor finishes. But it continues throughout a lifetime, praying for, caring for, even crying for our children. Give them the strength to live patiently, joyfully, and hopefully. Allow them to experience the abundant love and joy of being a mother. Give them freedom from their fear and anxiety, from unnecessary stress and from worry. May they faithfully pray for their children and teach them the word. May they model justifying faith and godly character. May they show their children grace and loving kindness. May they raise their children up in Jesus. Give our mothers and all mothers the faithful support of a loving, faithful Christian husband. Give them the support of a family, of a church, and of friends to care both for them physically and spiritually. Father, give them biblical wisdom to face the forever changing obstacles that they will face raising children. Sustain them. May they receive delight. In you. And Father, we also ask for reconciliation for those who have been estranged from their mothers. We ask for healing for those who have been deeply wounded by their mothers. We ask that you hear the cries of those who always wanted to be mothers, but were never able to do so. Draw them near to you. Comfort them. Bless them. Father, and as we turn to your word, may we not be blind and remain in darkness, but may we follow after Christ. And may we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. At this point, I'll ask all of our mothers to please stand for recognition. Thank you, mothers, for being faithful. Children, you may now be dismissed. I wasn't going to let you leave before we honored your mothers. (laughs) And it has become our custom, I'll now ask all of you to stand who are able and willing for the reading of our holy and errant word of God. And I'll ask you, please, if you have a Bible, turn to Micah 7. We'll be flipping back and forth through the entire book of Micah this morning as you will shortly find out. But this morning's passage is found in Micah 7, verses 18 to 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our our fathers from the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It is our eighth and final week in the book of Micah. I was waiting to hear if I could hear someone sigh in relief. But hopefully, hopefully you've actually, you want more. We made it through seven chapters of Micah in seven weeks. Just to let you know, two of the commentators that I used in preparation for this book, one went through Micah, broke the sermon series out in 20 weeks. The other was 18 weeks. We did it in seven. So I wish we could have camped out longer. I wish we could have gotten deeper. I wish we could have understood more. But well, my hope is that this is not the end of our study in Micah. My hope is that you return regularly to this part of God's Word as it draws you back in, both with its warning, reminding us of our constant sin, but also for its grace. For who is a God like Yahweh? Who pardons iniquity and passes over our transgressions? This this is what Micah's name means. And if you've learned anything, if if you can remember anything from this sermon series, I hope that you take this away, that you take this refrain away. Whenever anyone talks about Micah, you should automatically respond: no one, no one is like Yahweh. So why one more sermon? Well, I'm glad you asked. This morning, my goal is to help put some pieces together. As we know, in all all the Old Testament is like a breadcrumb trail leading us to Jesus. Well, this morning, I hope that we see a breadcrumb trail of theology in the book of Micah that points us to Jesus. And what I hope to do is to excavate this theology so that we might better see our need for Jesus Because in this story, like in every other story of the Old Testament, there are three characters. And in most stories and movies, typically you have these three characters. You have a good guy, you have a bad guy, and you have everyone else, right? Most stories you have Batman or the Joker. You have Harry Potter and Lord Voldemort. You have Peter Pan and Hook. You have Ricky Bobby and Jean Girard. And then the third character is everyone else. And in most stories, these everyone else people, they help move the story along. They give more depth. They effectively get us to the outcome. But every other character relies upon these two main characters, the good guy and the bad guy. In the story of Scripture, there are also three main characters, but it is unlike any other story that we've ever heard. It isn't a story of a good guy versus a bad guy. It isn't a story of two competing characters that try to assume ultimate power. No, the scriptures don't teach a philosophical dichotomy of equal rivals. It's not the force against the dark side. The Bible doesn't teach that there's an even playing field, and that we are just waiting to see who wins in the end. No, the Scriptures teach us that Yahweh, God, is wholly other. He has no rivals. He has no equals. He has no peers. He has no competition. He has no struggle over assuming ultimate power. It is already His. Genesis 1 teaches that. He created everything, the heavens and the earth, Everything else is created. He is omnipotent. He has all the power. He revealed this when he brought his people out of Exodus. This is what it says in Exodus nine fourteen. For this time I will send all of my plagues on you and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all of the earth. This is what the prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 10, this is what Isaiah said in Isaiah 46. Remember this and stand firm. And th- this, this this should sound familiar. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am a God and there is no other. I am a God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things not yet done. But that's not where Isaiah stops. Do you know how that verse finishes? My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. The scriptures do not tell a suspense story. It is stated from the very beginning, God wins. From the very beginning of the story, God wins because he has no peers, because he has no equals, because he has no one in the same league as him. What we experience from, is from our perspective. It's from our vantage point. And these experiences and struggles are very real. But we experience these evils because we experience the cause of our own sin, which is anti-God, which is anti-good, which is anti-life. People do evil because they obey their sin, because it's their master. People do harm because they have a love for self over a love for over a love for their neighbor, let alone a love for God. People do evil because they have so been warped by sin that they don't know what good is anymore. But do not be fooled. Satan is not equal to God. He is a creature. He is not omnipotent. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. His power cannot tip the scales. He is a subject. He will not win. That's the story of Scripture. That's the meta narrative of the entire biblical story. There is only one true king, and he will win. One figure, one character, and then there's everybody else. Then we get to the other two characters in all of the scriptures. And before we we even say that this is an us versus them mentality, or God's people versus the world, as, as many people say today, the culture... What I want us to see in the book of Micah is that Micah is actually writing to the very two characters that we see in all of Scripture, but Micah is also writing to the people of God. Have you noticed that throughout the entire book? Micah speaks about the nations. He does this in chapter 1, chapter 4, and chapter 5. He speaks of the nations and the many peoples who walk the face of the earth, but Micah is writing to God's people. There are those who are part of God's people, but who do not know who God is. This is the theology that I want us to see this morning. It is that within Micah, like the rest of Scripture, there is the distinction between two people. One is called God's remnant. And then there's everybody else. Four weeks ago, I preached on Micah 4, and I spoke of a remnant as an unusually small part, a member, or a trace of something that remains, a portion of something greater. And what Micah is proclaiming is a distinction between two characters those who belong to the Lord. And those who do not belong to the Lord. And he does this in Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, In that day, they, the world, shall be take up a taunt against you, God's people, and moan bitterly. And they, we, God's people, will be utterly ruined. But look at what he says. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To the apostate, he allots our fields. To the apostate, to the one outside of God's people, he gives them the fields. Why does he do this? Why does he take from what he has given to his people and give it to the apostate, to the world, to the other? Because of their sin. Because of their sin, he is giving the portion of the allotment of the promised land that he promised to their forefathers, that he gave to their families. He is taking it away because of their faithlessness to God. God has promised. He is sending his people into Babylon for judgment over their sin. But God has also promised that he will bring back his remnant. He will bring his people back to the promised land and he will assemble them as his people. And there will be those that believe that they were God's people that will not be a part of the assembly of God. And this is where he goes in Micah 2. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather you the remnant of Of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Do you know who He will bring back? He will bring back those who follow by faith, He will bring back those who will follow the shepherd. The remnant of Israel are those who will be saved by God's grace those who truly are Jacob's sons and daughters, because their hearts have been circumcised and they walk in the way of their Lord. And now listen how Micah describes the remnant in Micah 4, verse 6. And that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those who have been afflicted. And then in Micah 7, verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to light and I shall look upon his vindication. And then in chapter 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? It is the remnant who he will pardon. It is the remnant who God will transform. It is the remnant that God will forgive their sins and cast them into the sea that they bear it no more. Who is the remnant? Those saved by God's grace. It is God and his grace that has drawn them to himself. It's not based on anything that they've done or haven't done. What distinguishes the remnant, what makes them distinct from everybody else, is their faith in God's unmerited grace. As Lincoln Duncan says, my faith and my repentance did not cause God's grace or secure God's grace. My very desire to have faith and to repent was a result of God's prior grace towards me. And we've seen this all through Micah, right? Right? We've seen this. Who has always taken the initiative? Who has always taken the first step on page after page? It's God. It's God who has chosen them. It's God who made promises. It's God who sustains them. It's God who purifies them from their sin over and over and over. Salvation is purely by God's grace for his people. They are saved by grace and sustained by grace. They are those who respond, as Micah did, with this liturgical song, verses 18, 19, and 20 of verse 7, is a liturgical song echoing what Moses sang after the redemption of Egypt. This is what he said in Exodus 15, 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in, the, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you, who saves a people from their sin, even though they don't deserve it? It is Yahweh, and there is no one like Yahweh. Who will be saved from their sins? Those who look and rest upon God's grace for salvation. Those who repent and by faith follow his word. Those who hear his word coming to them through a prophet, by his grace, and receives what he freely Offers them. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. I have kept for myself a remnant chosen by grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord, He is the sole provider. And now you might be saying, Tyler, you've really confused me on these two different groups. You're saying that there's the world, you're saying that there's Israel, and now you're saying that there's a remnant inside of Israel. Isn't Isn't that three groups, not two? Well, you might actually think that. But this is where we have to have a hard conversation. I'm actually not saying that there's three groups. I'm actually saying there's only two groups. Those inside of God's grace and those outside of God's grace. There's the remnant saved as God's people, and then there's everybody else. But what's really hard is to recognize the difference between these two groups. These are the people that we've seen throughout Micah that we also see in our own churches who do the right things, who look the right way, who say the right words. They know, they know the jargon. They participate in the rituals. They're the ones who come to God and say, how can I please you? Can I not bring an offering? Can I not bring a thousand rams? Can I not bring 10,000 rivers of oils? Can I not offer you the, the fruit of my body? But then at the exact same time, they detest God's justice. They make his paths crooked. They build the city according to the, on, on the, built upon the blood of their neighbors, They preach for a price, they they prophesy for money, and they judge for a bribe. They do not love God's mercy, they do not love God's justice. They presume on God's grace, and yet they still say, is not the Lord with us? Brothers and sisters, Micah has told us the same story that the rest of Scripture teaches us there are those who follow God by faith and that there are those that don't. You are either God's people or you're not. You either follow by faith, looking to him alone for salvation, or you don't. You either bow your knee to the one true king or you don't. So here's the million dollar question. How do we know which group we're in? I don't ask this to bring fear. I actually speak about this theology of Micah, this theology of all the scriptures. I actually speak about this scriptural truth to bring us hope. Because do you know how we know who is in each group? Do you rest upon Jesus for your salvation or not? That's it. Do you truly see your need for Jesus? Because he's it. He's the answer. He is the chosen one, the shepherd king who is drawing his people to himself by grace. There are those who come to church who pray, who sing, who give tithes, who confess, who participate in the sacraments, who hear the word preached, but yet they do not have faith. The question is, will you follow Jesus by faith as he is offered in the gospel? You don't have to ask the question, will I ever hear it? You're hearing it right now. Will you follow Jesus by faith? Will you respond to the grace offered to you by God the Father in Jesus? That you don't deserve his grace, but because he loves you. He offers it to you freely, for free come without money and buy. These are the promises that Micah is giving the people in his day. And you might ask, how does that that affect us, right? Why why teach this theology of this remnant people, of this, this remnant of God? And I'm going to stop letting Blake teach Sunday school because he took all my thunder again. But is it so hard for us to think about why this message might mean something for us? Is it so hard to believe that in the world that we live in, in a nation that we live in, that was founded on Christian principles, has gone so far astray? It's just so hard to believe why people might lose hope. Right? We're a nation founded on Christian principles. Do you want to see a nation that was founded by God himself? Look at Israel. And they still fell away. This is a message that God wants his people of any generation to hear, your hope is not in a nation. Your hope is not in a king. Your hope isn't in a preacher. Your hope isn't in a sacrifice. Your hope is in nothing less than Jesus himself. That's it. Israel was being completely obliterated by the Assyrians when Micah was writing. Later they would be taken over by the Babylonians. When we read 1 Peter, do you know the context of that story? God's people had been dispersed throughout all of the nations. Why do they need this hope of this theology? Because God will save them and God will win. Do you remember what Micah lamented over in chapter 1? Over the sin that had come over God's people? He lamented over these cities that were about to be destroyed by the Assyrians. In most of the cities, he actually gave them a specific description. They were given a description of being military strongholds. Because people were putting their faith in their nation's power over the nation's God. Do you remember what God promised to do when he would purify his people? This is what he says in Micah 5, verse 10 and 11. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down your strongholds. To purify his people, he had to purify his people from what they valued more than God himself. Brothers and sisters, is it so hard to believe that God's people would trust in their own strength? Or is this what we do every single day of our lives? Trust in our own works, trust in our own abilities, trust in someone else's works, someone else's abilities... But this is the narrative of Scripture. This is the story. This is the gospel of Jesus. There is God, and then there's everybody else. And it's God who wins. The question is do you follow him by faith? It's hard not to fear. It's hard not to want to have influence. But do you remember? Who is like Yahweh? Nobody. And He's come to us in Jesus and offered us nothing but grace. Our hope is not in the kingdoms of this world, but our one true king. Our hope is not in our nation. It's in the city that God is building in Jesus. Nothing can give you true peace. Do you know what Micah says in chapter 5, verse 8? Not that Jesus will give us peace. It's not that Jesus will give us a thought of peace. What does Micah say, chapter 5, verse 8? He will be our peace. It's him. It's not a part of him. It's not the idea of him. It is him. He is building his city through faith in his word. And he will win. You have nothing to fear. Our God is good. He loves his people. He gave himself up for his people. He will accomplish his purpose. And he will come again. Do you believe in this story that Micah tells Because the entire story of Micah, the entire book of Micah, the entire prophecy of Micah looked for one person to bring it all about. And his name is Jesus. He is the one true king. He is the good shepherd that is gathering his sheep. His remnant. And one day we will stand and sing Just as Micah stood and sang, because our iniquity will be passed over. Our sin will be thrown into the sea because we will be standing next to our one true king. Brothers and sisters, we have nothing to fear. God will win. Let's pray. Father, help our waning hearts. Father, cause us to see our sin, and may we run from it and run to Jesus. Oh, Father, who is a God like you? Remind us week by week through the preaching of your word and through this sacrament of the grace that you have offered us in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.